0: So I wanted to talk today about insurance, uh, which is another risk management device that's traditionally separate from uh, securities, which we talked about last time, but the underlying principles are the same. Um, Before I begin, I wanted to uh, just uh, give some more thoughts about uh, the uh, diversification through securities and that will lead us into um, insurance. Uh, so, in this way, let me just review uh, the preceding lecture briefly for that purpose. What we did, the, the core theoretical framework that we had was the mean variance uh, theory, the, which led us to the capital asset pricing model. But the basic thing was that we had to, in order to use the framework, we had to start by producing estimates of the Expected returns on each asset, we call those R, and the standard deviation of the return on each asset, and the covariance between the returns of each pair of assets. And then once we did that, we could plug that into the formula that I gave you last time and get the standard deviation of the portfolio and the expected return on the portfolio. And from then on, if you accept the analysis and the assumptions that are uh, the estimates that underlie it, we pretty much know how to construct portfolios. Uh, but the underlying estimates uh, may not accord with your belief or your intuitive sense of common sense. And so, the other thing that I mentioned last time was that there seems to be a really big difference between the expected return on the stock market and the expected return on uh, sh- short term debt. Uh, we found an equity premium. Well, Actually, Jeremy Siegel's book gave an equity premium of 4% a year. uh, and Some people find that hard to believe. How can it be that one asset does 4% a year better than another? Some people say, well, if that's the case, I want to invest in nothing more than that one asset. Why should I take something that uh, is underperforming? Jeremy Siegel goes on further to say that uh, since the mid-19th century, We've never had a 30-year period when stocks underperformed bonds. So as stocks are <laughs> really—if uh, anyone who has an investment horizon of 30 years, you'd think, why should I ever hold bonds? Uh, so the numbers that Jeremy Siegel produces seem implausibly high for uh, for the um, stock market. So uh, what we call this is the. Uh, I want to emphasize it. I wrote this again, I'll write this again: the equity premium puzzle. That term was actually uh, coined by economists Prescott and Mayra. but uh, it's now in general use, that it just seems that stocks so much outperform other. Other investments. So, for Jeremy Siegel, in the latest edition of his book, the equity premium is 4% a year since 1802. That's almost, uh, no, that's more than, that's 106 years. Uh, So, uh, why would that be, and how can you believe that? So, one question that comes up is that maybe uh, this is for the US data. And so some people say, well, maybe, you know, why are we looking at the US? Because the US is uh, an arguably very successful country. Uh, And so uh, we have potentially a a bias in our, uh, it's called a a selection bias. If you pick as the country you study one of the most successful countries in the world, uh, that doesn't. uh, Inform you. Can you see now? <laughs> uh, that doesn't inform you very well about what it is for a random country, and or for the U.S. going forward. Uh, there's something wrong. Uh, the U.S. has been successful in financial markets, and it's being imitated by lots of countries. Uh, financial markets similar to ours are being set up in many places, but you wonder. You know, maybe they're over-imitating. Maybe. You know, maybe we were just lucky, or maybe it was because the U.S. was, was the, uh, the um, the first uh, in some ways to develop some of these financial institutions, or one of the first. And so, but now when more and more countries start doing it, maybe it won't work so well. So one way of investigating this is to, uh, to get around the selection bias is to try to look at all countries. Let's not just look at the United States. Let's look at every country of the world, and let's see if they have, uh, if they have a equity premium. Okay. So, uh, but there's a problem with that, and the problem is that countries that are less successful don't keep data. <laughs> That's a problem. Or, or they, they they sometimes they just shut down their stock markets at some point. Uh, this is, uh, this is since 1802. How many countries do you think have uninterrupted stock market data since 1802? What do you think? You name another country that probably has it. What's that? England, you got it, UK. You can, uh, uh, I sub- uh, if you go into the continent though, uh, they tended to be interrupted by World War I and World War II. Uh, what about Japan? Do they have, do you think they have uninterrupted? They had a little bit of a problem uh, around World War II, and uh, you can try to bridge the gap, but uh, but uh, anyway, uh, there are people who've tried to sort this out, uh, and um, there's one. It's, it's a book by Dimson, Marsh, uh, and Staunton that uh, called "Triumph of the Optimists," that Jeremy Siegel quotes. He has a table in, in, in the new fourth edition of his book. And Dimson, Marsh, uh, and uh, Staunton look at uh, the following countries Belgium, Italy, Germany, France, Spain, Japan, Switzerland, Ireland, Denmark, Netherlands, UK, Canada, US, South Africa, Australia, and Sweden. Every one of them has a positive equity premium, although the US is on the high side of them all. It's not the not the not the best. The country that has the highest equity premium, and that's for the whole 20th century. They couldn't go back to the 1802. Uh, The most successful country is Sweden, uh, and after that, Australia. So U.S. is not the most successful stock market, although it's high on the high on the list. So uh, uh, Jeremy Siegel concludes that there's. uh, that the equity, pr- he said uh, that, these, that this book by Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton uh, lay, puts to bed any concerns about selection bias. Uh, and he cl- claims that so many countries have shown an equity premium that we can be confident. This book is really very strong on the conclusions. The title of the book, Stocks for the Long Run Stocks Always Outperform Other Investments for the Long Run. And he says it's not due to selection bias. But you know, I kind of wonder the list of countries that I just read to you, that, that Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton studied, excludes some important countries, doesn't it? <laughs> Who does it exclude? That? Well, it doesn't have India, Russia, and China in it, for example. Uh, and I don't know, at least uh, Russia and China, do you know anything about their history? Do they have any stock market disruptions in the last hundred years? <laughs> I think it's kind of obvious. Uh, they had a communist revolution in both places, right? And so, uh, Russia and China are not mentioned, are uh, not studied by Dimson, Marsh, and Stanton. Why not? Well, they can't get data. There wasn't a stock market. Well, there actually was a stock market in Russia before 1918 and in China before 1949. So, what did, what happened to investors? If you were a Chinese investor in Chinese stocks in 1949. What happened? You <laughs> know what happened. It went. That's that famous minus minus 100 percent return, right? Which dominates everything. And so, uh, uh, so I think what would Siegel say? You know, he's really saying that this equity premium is enduring, and uh, we should believe it. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know. I think that. I think what Jeremy would say is, well, you're looking. If you look at Russia and China, you're looking at political factors, and, and I'm only looking at politically stable countries, and so this whole thing is irrelevant. Really, we're not going to have a communist revolution in any of these advanced countries now, and so uh, Jeremy would say, forget that. It looks pretty sound that we have an equity premium, so we can trust that. Well, he's a good friend of mine, but I think he may be overstating it <laughs> a little bit. We have, th- we have some disagreements. Um, the thing that comes to my mind is uh, that I wanted to say, before concluding this uh, review of the last lecture, uh, that is that the stock market is inherently <coughs> political in any country, that politics have tremendous, eff- uh, tremendous effect on the values in the stock market. Uh, and that's because, of even if the government doesn't nationalize the stock market or confiscate assets, they tax them, right? And do you know we have in the U.S. we have a uh, corporate profits tax? Well, it's not just in the U.S. Uh, essentially every I don't know if there's any exception there may not be an exception, but essentially every country has a corporate profits tax and then we also have a personal income tax okay uh, So the corporate profits tax goes after the profits that corporations make the personal it's taken from corporations before they pay out their dividends. The personal income tax is levied on individuals, and uh, these individuals have to pay it. But the, the personal income tax is not simple. It's not just a flat rate on your income. it depends on the type of income. So dividend income or capital gains income in the stock market is taxed differently. The interesting thing is is that through time As political winds change, these taxes have changed uh, and they've gone up to some very high levels in the past in the United States and other countries. I'm going to give some uh, U.S. tax rate. Um, The personal tax on dividends, uh, of course, it depends also on your tax bracket and your income. I'm going to talk about the highest tax bracket. In the U.S., it went over 90% in World War II and and the succeeding years. So the government was taking 90% of your dividend income, right? What is it today? Do you know what anyone know? What's the tax rate on dividends today? Zero. Uh, it, it might be zero for yeah for some people, but it, it's actually it is. Uh, the standard rate for people who have not, neglig- not negligible income is 15%. So it's gone down from over 90% to 15%. Why did it do that? Well, it's some kind of political um, change. And uh, the uh, corporate, uh, okay. And incidentally, at the beginning of the 20th century, you were right, who said zero? We didn't. Uh, we didn't even have an uh, income tax until 1913, when the Supreme Court uh, allowed it. So it was zero. Then it went up uh, to 90 percent, or actually it was 94 percent at the peak. It came down to 15 percent. Okay, that's a pretty big hit on the stock market. So you know, it wasn't just China that took the stock market. When we were taking 90 percent of dividends, that was 90 percent of the stock market was being taken by the government. But that's not all, because we were also taxing the corporations. Uh, and in the early uh, post war period, the corporate. Now, I'm going to talk. There's a distinction between the rate that they charge and the actual amount that they take. Uh, uh, most advanced countries of the world today have a corporate profits tax rate for large corporations of about a third. So they, they typi- a typical advanced country takes a third of the profits, the government takes a third of the profits. But that's not the actual amount that they pay because the tax law is so complicated and there's so many loopholes. So I, what I looked at, and I have this on the website, I have a chart showing corporate profits taxes paid as a fraction of corporate profits for the United States since 1929, uh, and that has moved around a lot. But it got almost up to 60% in the in the post World War II period, and now it's down to less than a third. Why is it down? It's because they're changing enforcement of the taxes and the changing amounts of loopholes. So uh, most countries, uh, uh, they have a, a tax rate of about a third, but corporations are paying less than a third of their profits to taxes. So if we want to look going forward at the equity premium, we have to know how much uh, what's the politics, and what's the government going to do in the future? They've moved these tax rates around a lot. So I think that it's very hard to be sure that we know going forward what our sigma and uh, the, the 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 expected return, the standard deviation of returns, and the covariance of returns are are really. So we have a nice theoretical framework, but the application of the framework to the real data is hard, and it ends up politics <laughs> underneath it all, and that's uh, that's just the real world. I want to say one more thing about. Uh, about the uh, diversification in the mutual fund. Uh, ideally, mutual funds are calculating R and sigma and sigma 12 and plugging in and finding what the optimal portfolio that you should hold is, and then offering that to you in their mutual fund. Uh, in, in practice, firms that do that are, in practice, however, the minority. And most mutual funds have some gimmick or some special. uh, They claim to be beating the market, not forming the optimal portfolio. And I also have up on the website uh, some questions that I asked investors about uh, about uh, what they think about picking stock. Picking stocks means trying to find a stock that's going to do really well, Uh, and so. uh, what I found uh, the question I asked is, um, do you agree or sorry, which of the following is the correct answer to this statement? Trying to time the market, to get out before it goes down and in before it goes up. Is A a smart thing to do? Or B, not a smart thing to do? Most people think that it's not a smart thing to do to try to time the market. Only 11 percent said yes to that. But then I ask another question. Do you think uh, trying to pick mutual funds, (laughs) uh, trying to to find a mutual fund that will beat the market, uh, is a smart thing to do or not a smart thing to do? So most people think it's a smart thing to do. So, what I think the mutual fund industry has turned into largely is a stock picking industry, not a portfolio diversification industry. Uh, And so, what most people are doing when they go into a mutual fund. Is they're trying to find smart people who will beat the market, who will pick those stocks that will do well. Uh, but the mutual fund theory that we gave last time said, no, the mutual fund is just supposed to be diversifying for you. In fact, the uh, truth is somewhere in between. Most mutual funds are providing some diversification service, and they're also trying to uh, they're also trying to uh, beat the market. Finally, I just wanted to say that uh, I, I've been talking mainly about the uh, about the U.S., but the mutual funds have been growing in importance around the world. Uh, and uh, there was a recent paper by um, Harana uh, surveys. I'm sorry, Carana surveys and Tufano that looked at. What it is that explains uh, which uh, countries have uh, had rapidly growing mutual fund industries, and they found, not surprisingly, that it tends to mutual funds have been growing more rapidly in countries that have stronger securities laws and institutions, especially laws that protect individual shareholders' uh, rights. Also, mutual funds have been growing more. In countries that have a higher level of education and a higher level of wealth. Uh, and they also grow more in countries that have institutional structures that encourage uh, that encourage uh, investing in mutual funds, such as pension plans. Uh, but I think it's a trend around the world that we're going to see more and more mutual funds. Uh, and I think it's a good thing. I think they will help us to diversify our risks. Uh, So, anyway, I wanted then to move on to uh, the topic of today's lecture, which is uh, insurance. And uh, the insurance is the other side of the uh, risk management uh, that uh, institutions that we have. Insurance evolved separately from securities. It's long been a different industry, but the principles are the same. And the principles of insurance. The, funda- the fundamental powerhouse is the principle of risk pooling. And uh, insurers, just like mutual funds, are providing risk pooling for you. Okay, So, risk pooling means they put a lot of people in with independent or low correlated risk into a pool and reduce the risk for the whole pool. Uh, they have to contend with something called moral hazard. Which is the risk that people will be affected by the fact that they're insured and then do something bad. The classic moral hazard problem is the problem that uh, you give fire insurance on a house, and so someone burns down the house in order to collect the insurance. Um, and they also have to deal with selection bias. Uh, and what this means in the insurance context is that. If you offer insurance policies, you will tend to attract people who are higher risk. All right So if you offer life insurance, you have life tables which give you probabilities of dying at various ages, but that's for the general population. All the sick people will come to you <laughs> to buy life insurance, and they will uh, turn out to have a higher death rate than the population at large. So these are the problems of, of insurance that we have to deal with. I just wanted to review the, the mathematics of insurance. Uh, this, this is actually just, in part, just a review of what we talked about in the uh, second lecture. But uh, in the ideal world, if you have independent risks, uh, under the independence assumption, the uh, uh, Probability distribution for the number of uh, contract uh, insurance contracts that you will have to pay on follows the binomial distribution. So X is the number of accidents. Let's say this is some accident insurance. Okay. Oops. Uh, the the uh, the probability of having a- and n is the number of Policies that you're writing, and if you're going to have P is the probability of an accident, then the binomial distribution uh, gives you the probability of having X accidents out of your N policies. And uh, we had that uh, before. That is. It is um, P to the X one minus P to the one minus X power uh, times N all over X factorial times N minus X factorial. And so that is the (coughs) binomial distribution, and it allows you to calculate the uh, the probability of any number of accidents. Uh, The the mean uh, proportion, uh, or the mean of x over n, which is uh, is equal to p. So, uh, am I writing big enough? You can see. The, uh, uh, if x is the number of accidents, the mean number of accidents divided by your number of policies is given just by the probability. But the standard deviation of x over n is equal to the square root of p times 1 minus p all over n. And so that is the. Maybe I should get these out of here. Uh, So that is the. That that gives you the mean and standard deviation of the proportion. So to actually apply this, it helps to go to something called the normal approximation to the binomial. So, uh, because it's kind of difficult to compute this formula, there's an easier formula and you assume that uh, the binomial distribution is really a normal distribution with a mean of, or I'm sorry, the, the proportion of accidents, x over n follows a normal distribution with mean p and standard deviation given by this. Uh, and that's all, That's the uh, the whole theory that I have here. It's it's simple. Uh, so maybe I should make a bigger. Well, let me do it here. I can fit it in here. I think. I'm going to draw an example. I've got it plotted out, and it's on the website. But it's a very simple example, where um, I have the case where p equals 0.2 okay so the probability of an accident is 20% this is a significantly high probability of accident can you see uh, down uh, you can see all this right it goes from zero let's do this from 0 to 0.4 uh, if uh, if you wrote only one policy what's the probability distribution of x over n well, it has two possible values. It could be the one person doesn't have the accident or does have the accident. So if n equals 1, uh, we have uh, an 80% chance, this would be 80%, of, of, uh, of no accident. Uh, and uh, actually, let's make this 1, not 0.4. Then a 20% chance of one of x over n equals one. Okay, so I'm plotting. Uh, th- this is the probability of various values of x over n. If n equals one, x over n can take on only two values, zero or one, and it takes on the value one with a probability of 20%, and the value of zero with a probability of 80%. I didn't use the normal approximation there. I just—that's obvious, right? I I used the binomial itself. But let's go to the case where n is 100. Then, uh, see how should I? um, Maybe I'll leave that up. You can see this, okay? These diagrams I'm drawing. If n equals 100, now I'm going to label this axis differently. I'm now going to show the normal bell-shaped curve. And I'm going to do this from 0 to 0.4. Maybe I do have to make this bigger. Can you see this all right back there? Okay, so 0 to 0.4 and so 0.2 is here in the middle. That's 0.2. For n equals, now I'm going to do n equals 100. Uh, What is the mean? Well, the mean is always 0.2 no matter how many policies you write. So it's going to be we're going to have a normal distribution centered on 0.2. This 0.2 is not very readable here. Um, I have to crunch down <laughs> to do it. Okay. So, uh, and what is the standard deviation? It's the square root of 0.2 times 0.8 over 100. So that's uh, 0.16 uh, uh, over 100. So the standard deviation uh, is 0.04. Uh, so, what does the curve look like? Uh, it's a bell shaped curve that looks uh, about like that. <laughs> I didn't draw that very well. <laughs> Let me try again. I should be able to do nice bell-shaped curves, but uh, it's harder than it looks standing up here. Okay, so that's your bell-shaped curve. So with a hundred policies, uh, they can't really count that accurately on having 20% of the policies pay. There's still substantial insurance risk because the, the um, it could easily be only 15% um, or it could be 25% of the policies. That end up paying, so the insurance company with 100 policies would have still substantial risk. It's much better; the the uncertainty about x over n is much lower for the case n equals 100 than it was for the case n equals 1. But it's still there. Now I want to draw. What if we write 10,000 policies? Okay. Uh, And so, what is the probability distribution? For x over n in that case. Well, you can see you're going to be dividing not by 100 here, but by 100 times 100. So it's going to reduce this from 0.04 to 0.004. Okay? And so the normal, the bell shaped curve in that case for the x over n is going to look something like this. Well, I've got it uh, plotted here. It's even more steep than that. That's a a, a bell-shaped curve, but it's centered exactly on point two. Exactly, the number of policies doesn't affect the mean, but it affects the standard deviation. So it becomes very collapsed. And this is the basic core idea of insurance. You have to be a big company to do it. And if you have a big company, you've exhausted the uh, the risk of uh, almost never goes away completely. Uh, And so if we did a, uh, we could go another another. Two decimal. If we did a million, no, uh, yeah, a million uh, policies, then we would. This would almost be just a a spike here at uh, at that point. So that's the concept of insurance. Uh, But uh, the idea uh, uh, really took root. The idea, the intuitive idea, that as you write a large number of policies, the fraction that are that will result in accidents becomes Closer and closer to the uh, probability of one accident. That's an idea that it struck to, struck people intuitively at various times in history, but they didn't know how to um, how to uh, do these calculations. So uh, historians of probability have noted that this basic idea is actually in Aristotle, the ancient uh, Greek. A philosopher, a scientist. And I'm going to quote Aristotle from his book, De uh, it And he says, to, uh, he's talking very generally here, but I think it's this, he's really talking about this. He says, to succeed in many things or many times is, quote, difficult. For instance, to repeat the same throw of dice uh, 10,000 times would be impossible, whereas to make it once or twice is comparatively easy. That's Aristotle talking. It's exactly this theory. But he doesn't have the word probability, which hadn't been invented yet. So he's using intuitive, he says difficult or easy. So he says it's difficult, meaning the probability is very low, or easy, meaning the probability is high. He had the idea, but he didn't have the math. Uh, so that, I think that may be the first known statement of the binomial distribution. Well, it doesn't get very f- precise, but it has the intuitive concept. The idea of using this theory for uh, insurance—it's the earliest known statement of it—is a. uh, It was in an anonymous letter, written in 1609, to uh, Count Oldenburg. But that's not the person who said it. That was the person who received the letter. Uh, Anyway, uh, the person wrote. He was talking about fires, and was proposing that. Uh, people should pay 1% of the value of the home every year into a fund, and then the fund would be used to replace the home if it burned down. And Quoting this anonymous person writing in 1609, uh, there is no doubt that it would be fully proved if a calculation were made of the number of houses consumed by fire within a certain space in the course of 30 years, that the loss would not amount by a good deal to the sum that would be collected in that time. So it's interesting that this person uses the word calculation. This person has the idea. This was the 1600s was the year when probability theory was invented. So someone had the idea of going beyond the intuitive notion that Aristotle mentioned and moving to something that is calculable, and that's when the insurance industry was really born. So so insurance relies on this theory of risk pooling. But it has to make it work, uh, and I, I stressed uh, in the third lecture that, uh, like any insurance, like any other risk management device, is an invention, and that uh, in, uh, in, in every risk management device re- relies on a design, and the design is uh, is usually complex, and uh, has it all has to work together. In order for a design to work well, we have to have every component there. If one component is missing, we may have a failure. All these components have to be compatible with each other, and it has to work um, in a um, what I work according to a plan, which ultimately is informed by this theory. So, insurance as an invention. Uh, has to have what what uh, things? Uh, it has to have a contract design. It's a it, that would be a, a document uh, which is a contract between the insured and the insurance company that specifies uh, what does it specify? It specifies what risks are covered uh, and uh, Exclusions. Some risks are not covered. Uh, and those exclusions are carefully designed in regard of moral hazard and selection bias. Um, there, there has to be the mathematical model, which I just presented, but it may be more complicated. Um, there has to be a, a form for the company. There could be a corporate form, that is, the the insurance company uh, could be a a corporation, and uh, it could be either a non profit corporation or a for profit corporation owned by shareholders. Or the insurance company could be a mutual insurance company, in which case the insurance company is owned by the insured. Um, And then you need, as well, you need. Government regulation, because uh, the insurance companies don't seem to exist without it. There has to be regulators that are uh, at least verifying that the insurance company is doing what it 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 says um, it's going to do. And so, uh, the one thing that the government has to do is assure that uh, reserves requirements are met. The company has to have enough money. On hand to pay out uh, in the in the um, case of default. So, uh, okay, one way of classifying uh, insurance companies is that they um, can exist as either uh, multi-line uh, insurance companies. Or monoline insurance companies. A multi-line insurance company insures many different kinds of things uh, and uh, doesn't uh, confine itself to one thing. So, if a company were just a, a fire insurance company, it would be a monoline insurance company. Uh, but it, but and, and they're essentially more risky, and more regulators have to watch them more because. They're standing a higher probability, a monoline of some major disaster. Uh, And uh, in contrast, a multi line kind of insures uh, uh, itself. Uh, So we hear a lot about monoline insurance companies in the newspapers today. I don't know if you're reading about the subprime crisis, but uh, we are living in a time at this moment of a financial crisis. Uh, called the subprime crisis, and uh, that naturally hits monoline insurance companies more than multiline insurance companies because they are more specialized and more vulnerable. Uh, I'll come back to to this distinction in a minute, but I wanted to talk about uh, certain kinds of uh, of uh, of uh, monoline insurance companies that uh, the, the biggest, uh, well, one, one category is property and casualty. These are uh, insurance companies, or PNC, these are insurance companies that insure the value of a home or a business or an automobile. Uh, and another kind of monoline insurance is health. An insurance company that merely insures people against health costs. And another important category is life insurance. Uh, So, uh, life insurance is uh, what it insures is uh, a beneficiary against the death of an insured. Uh, And the classic example, the the most important example, is families. that you would buy life insurance on both the husband and the wife.? Okay, you might or might do different amount. And it's done by families with young children to protect them against the economic cost of the death of one of their parents. Uh, and you need insurance on both parents because both parents are contributing uh, to the uh, uh, success of the children. So um, these are big industries. Uh, The uh, total assets of uh, property and casualty in 2007 in the United States, Uh, and these are assets, the property and casualty uh, was $1.4 trillion, And life insurance was 4.9 trillion dollars. So I don't actually did I I don't somehow I missed getting the health, but that would be another big uh, insurance. So this is uh, these are huge, uh, hugely important institutions uh, in our uh, in our um, in our society. So uh, what are what does property? Let me go to property and casualty. what do they insure? Uh, actually, the most important that thing that they insure is automobiles. Uh, the total premiums collected on automobiles is, about, is much bigger, uh, like five times bigger than the premiums they collect on homeowners. Automobile insurance is collision insurance. Okay. Homeowners insurance is used to be called fire insurance, but now they they've extended it to include so many other risks. Uh, it depends on the particular policy what it includes. It might include risks as well of personal liability if someone injures themselves on your property, or uh, risks of storms, of hurricanes, earthquakes, everything else. So we call it homeowners insurance. But actually, the automobile insurance is more important. And then the homeowners' insurance, even though homes are so much more valuable, uh, because I think that's because cars move and they drive around and they bump into each other. Homes just stay where they are, and so we have far fewer accidents. So they don't have to charge as high a premium uh, for uh, for uh, for the uh, insurance. So. uh, these insurance uh, contracts have come uh, across gradually through time uh, as we develop the theory. Uh, and I'll talk about the growth of insurance and about some of the components of it. Uh, uh, The real insurance industry, as I mentioned before, began in the 1600s uh, with the invention of probability theory and with the invention of uh, life tables for uh, ac- invention of actuarial science, but it grew slowly. and I think the reason that it grew slowly was that insurance is a very sophisticated concept. Uh, in order to explain it, I had to write down the binomial distribution. And uh, I, to explain it properly, for most people, that's a difficult concept. Uh, and so uh, I think I may have mentioned some of this before, but let me give this history. Uh, in uh, insurance, it was invented in the 1600s, but it did not proliferate fast. It pro- proliferate, pro- proliferated only very slowly. And some of the uh, important figures there had to be certain inventions uh, to make it work. Uh, again, I'm, I'm repeating a theme that is in my book, *New Financial Order*, that financial innovation and insurance innovation is a succession of inventions, and each invention propels the idea more forward. So it's like uh, we have laws of thermodynamics that underlie the use of engines, uh, and but you know you can't just go from the laws of thermodynamics to an automobile. There's a million steps along the way. If you look at the history of engines, there are discrete advances when people were able to apply the theory more and more. Well, in insurance there's a similar list of inventions. So uh, Morris Robi- Robinson uh, was head of Mutual Life um, of New York in the 1840s uh, and he uh, got the idea of Highly paid life insurance salespeople. Uh, the idea was that uh, it's difficult to sell people on insurance. Back in the 1840s, life insurance was very important because the average expectancy of life was only something like 45 years, and so that meant parents were dying left and right. What would be the probability that a married couple would live both of them to the uh, to the uh, time when their children are grown? Uh, well, it was fairly low, right? If, if the average age at death was something like 45, uh, you know, but maybe a 50 50 chance of, of high uh, risk uh, of, of one of the parents dying. So you should think that people would really want life insurance, but they, uh, but they were not buying it. Uh, and why was it? Well, first of all, they were dying in such numbers, P was so high. That it was expensive. They have to pay, the premium has to cover the costs. And so it was tough to get someone to buy life insurance, uh, even though they really needed it. It was such a good idea for them. Uh, But uh, it's partly because there's a psychological resistance to it. You know, this is still very much alive today. I was standing at the World Economic Forum (laughs) at one of our lunch things, and a young woman approached me from Swiss Re. Which is a Swiss reinsurance company, and she said she wanted my ideas on how to sell crop insurance in Africa. She said we have it now at Swiss Re, uh, and of course the World Bank sponsors uh, crop insurance for farmers. So, and there are some very poor areas in Africa where farmers really run the risk. If their crop fails, uh, it could be really bad. Uh, they, you know, they would be approaching starvation. So wouldn't you think that farmers would want to buy crop insurance from this Swiss company? <laughs> Looks like a good idea to me. But she says we're having a lot of trouble selling it. Uh, and uh, she said, if you talk to the farmers in these rural areas, what do you think they say when you offer? It? They say, I can't afford the insurance. Well, they're not thinking right. You know, uh, uh, the whole idea of insurance is that. You take from your good years and you move it into your bad years so that you make it through all your years and so you're having a good year this year maybe it looks that way now and you think you can't afford it but just think how bad it will be if it's a bad year then you really won't you won't be able afford to stay alive uh, and so uh, but she says they didn't and some of them respond but a great majority of them don't and I think it's because of a psychological aversion to people have to thinking about Insurance is just unpleasant, and life insurance is actually an insurance against one of you dying. It's a very unpleasant topic. So if someone comes to your home and says, "I'm, I would like to uh, sell you life insurance," you know, you think, you know, some other day. I I don't want to talk today about the probability of one of us dying, Uh, and so uh, it was a tough sell. So uh, Morris Robinson, uh, however, realized. That some people are very talented salespeople. And they're probably talented at other things as well. So it may sound like a small, uh, a small improvement, but he just had very highly paid insurance salesmen. Uh, and they were paid as long as people kept their policy. And so that motivated an insurance salesman to form long term relationships with the families that he was insuring and to keep them from canceling their policies. So uh, he got talented, respected members of the community, who people admired, to become life insurance salesmen. And he had to pay them enough so that they would stick with the job. And then it finally worked. It may seem crazy, but it may seem like a modest innovation. But it actually uh, was uh, it was an important innovation. So I don't know how you think of life insurance salespeople, but uh, they have been pillars of the community. They're people that you. The community trusts that people uh, are willing to let into their home and discuss things like death. Uh, and that was an innovation that, uh, that came in then. Then the other innovation was Henry Hyde, uh, and he was at uh, another uh, insurance company, Equitable Life. Um, Uh, And that was in the um, late 1800s. And what he invented uh, was an insurance policy that had a cash value. (laughs) And that's another, uh, it's a cash value on the insurance policy. Uh, That is, that the insurance policy doesn't just um, insure you against death, it also builds value over the years. Uh, and this invention was very important because it stopped people from canceling. The, the big problem life insurance had is people would buy it and they'd pay for several years, uh, and then eventually, uh, they would think, "Well, we didn't die. <laughs> we were losing all this money. Let's just cancel the insurance." It especially happens the way life is in real families is, you, know, you, you start getting accustomed to a certain style of life, and you start spending more and more money. And there comes upon a, there comes a time when you have a little crunch and you know you're a little short on money, and so you're, you're casting her out for some way to come up with some money. And so canceling your life insurance was a, a good idea, uh, but uh, uh, it turns out that if you make them forfeit their cash value on canceling, then they won't cancel. And so um, that both of these were ideas uh, that uh, were copied all over the world. That's the way inventions are. Uh, and so, a lot of insurance policies today have cash values. Uh, and the third thing I was going to report uh, was, uh, sociologist Viviana Zelizer uh, wrote a book about life insurance salesmen sales in the ni- in the uh, 19th century, and she found that uh, there was a lot of resistance to purchase of life insurance in the 19th century. <coughs> And she tried to study it and tried to figure out how it was that life insurance became more and more important over that century. Uh, And one of her conclusions was that life insurance seemed to be opposed quite a bit by women, uh, 19th century women. Uh, And why didn't they like it? You would think that any rational woman in the 19th century would reflect on the fact that there's a significant probability that her husband will die of something while you still have children. And why wouldn't they want to? well what she found is that life insurance salespeople were going to families and trying to sell them on life insurance by explaining the concept. And they would say something like like I did. Maybe they didn't write down the binomial distribution, but they explained the idea of insurance. Uh, and uh, It didn't sound right to the typical 19th-century American woman, or, or I suppose it wasn't just America; it was a worldwide problem. And the reaction that salespeople would get from women was, "You know, this, this, this—you're giving me some probabilities or something, and you're asking me to—it sounds like you're asking me to play in some gambling thing, where I win if my husband dies." And (laughs) so it doesn't, doesn't sound right to me. Uh, I think. in fact, a lot of women would say something, I put my faith in God and I think I might bring down God's wrath if I did such a thing as to bet that my husband is going to die uh, and so she would uh, refuse to take part in it. It doesn't sound right to her. I'll trust in prayer and other things. Uh, so It didn't work uh, and you couldn't sell them on it. So What uh, Zelazer reported is that some life insurance companies surmounted this problem, by changing the pitch, by telling their salespeople, don't try to explain probability theory to these people. Uh, what you have to do is come across uh, differently. And so the, the thing that she said they started doing is to pretend, in a way, that they were missionaries with a gospel. <laughs> and the gospel is insurance. Uh, and they would tell these women, uh, you know, if you buy life insurance on your husband, then, should anything happen, your husband can love and protect you from beyond the grave uh, <laughs> and uh, that sounds good, <laughs> so uh, it worked and these little things you, you may they may seem like little things, but they are technological advances. Uh, people in a profession over the years learn more and more how to um, how to uh, How to manage uh, the public's expectations and get them to actually purchase uh, insurance. So, uh, I wanted to talk about government regulation of insurance because uh, I said that was an important aspect of insurance. Uh, And what the the regulators do, many things, uh, but insurance regulators, uh, most of all, are concerned with capital adequacy. So uh, so insurance re- now insurance is in the United States is regulated not by the federal government but by insurance regulators in each of the fifty states so it 's very hard to summarize insurance regulation in the United States. Why is it regulated separately by the fifty states uh, that 's because it started out that way when the federal government wasn 't involved in those sorts of things, and somehow we never had the uh, uh, in fact, it's talked about we should maybe we'll see it in the next 10 or 20 years uh, It's talked about that there should be a, f- a federal government regulation of insurance, but it's actually state regulators. And it makes it hard this is a handicap to the U.S. insurance industry. Other countries have it centralized, but in the U.S., it's split up over 50 states. So it's very hard to start an insurance company because you've got to g- meet the requirements of all 50 regulators. But the most important thing that these do is uh, they specify what reserves. Insurance companies have to hold, okay, and so uh, they, in other words, the insurance company doesn't trust the insurance companies to do the calculations, like I just showed with the binomial theorem. They want to make sure that there's a, a, a significantly high probability, a sufficiently high probability, that even if they get a bad draw and there's a lot of policies that require paying out, that these reserves will satisfy. Uh, so, a, a, an insurance company must hold the reserves. It can hold more uh, and that's called a statutory surplus. So uh, The reserves are an accounting entry. It's how much they are required to hold, uh, but the companies will hold more than that, uh, if, uh, typically in order to protect themselves more than is required and, and their policyholders more than is required by the regulators. So uh, occasionally you get into problems uh, with uh, with uh, reserves. And uh, uh, before I get to that, let me just say uh, uh, I want to just mention mention a few types of insurance that are important. So uh, let's talk about life insurance, and we're talking about kinds of policies that are around today. The simplest form of life insurance is called term insurance, okay? And this is insurance that you pay each year for insurance in that year, and it does not build a cash value. So this is the simple thing. I can buy insurance for myself this year, uh, and I can stop uh, and if I uh, th- th- there's no nothing gained, or uh, next year, I would just have to pay it again. Um, Whole life uh, is more complicated because it, it builds a, a cash value uh, according to a schedule, uh, and uh, there's both non-participating and pr- participating. With non-participating, well, with participating, you in, uh, you are participating in the portfolio outcome that the insurance company is experiencing, and so you have some in- uncertainty about your cash value. Um, there's something called variable life, uh, which refers to a life insurance policy uh, where um, the policyholder can shift, can make decisions about the investment of the uh, money in the whole life policy. And so uh, it's not just taking what's given by the insurance company. There's something called universal life. These are all explained in Fabozzi at al. That's a it's a whole life policy that gives the policyholder flexibility over the insurance premiums. You can pay more into the cash value in one year and less in another year, as long as you keep paying a um, a minimum amount. Um, And uh, there's also survivorship policies uh, that will pay. Uh, um, for example, uh, the second to die, there would be a policy if a husband and wife get it, and uh, it pays out when the second of them dies. Um, or oh, also about regulation, I wanted to mention the NAIC. It's a very important institution. That stands for National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Uh, and this is uh, something that's very important in the United States. Because, as I mentioned, uh, insurance regulation is divided up over the 50 states. And uh, the problem that that creates is uh, that it's a nightmare for insurance companies because every different state has different laws. Uh, Recognizing this problem, the insurance commissioners in the various states have decided to form an, an organization, that's the NAIC, and they hold regular conferences. Uh, and at these conferences, they uh, decide on a uh, recommended or uniform li- uh, insurance regulation policy. Uh, and it acts a little bit like a Congress. They make laws, but the laws are not binding on anyone. They're just suggested laws or regulations. Uh, and so it's an effort to try to get the complex uh, uh, complexity of 50 different regulators uniform. So, as I say, when the NAIC decides on some regulation, it's only a recommendation to the separate state regulatory commissions. Uh, but of course, it has a lot of force because all 50 states have met, the commissioners of 50 states have met and hashed it out. Uh, so, most states would essentially adopt what the NAIC says. Uh, otherwise, you know, they're not going to figure it all out. They, they can't claim to beat it would be rational to do that, right? You wouldn't think that we would rethink all of these things ourselves and then have it different in our state. So the NAIC is kind of a, a quasi-regulatory body or a it quasi-government. It's it's not government uh, because it has no authority, and yet it acts almost like a parliament where these people get together and decide on things, and they end up as a force of law. Uh, so. Uh, Another important uh, there's some milestones in insurance that um, I wanted to mention, um, and then I'm going to come back to finally concluding with problems that we see, uh, and of course the problems are not damning. They're problems that um, reflect the progress yet needed to be made in insurance. But um, I just wanted to mention uh, the Graham. Um, um, Leach Lilly um, Financial Modernization Act of 1999. Uh, and what this did is it allowed banks to offer insurance or to uh, ally and f- uh, join in, merge with insurance companies. Before that, as I said before, insurance is really the same thing as securities. They're both based on risk management and pooling of risks. Diversification or pooling are really the same thing. But we had a separate set of institutions. People never thought of insurance as the same as a bank. Uh, but since this is relatively recent, that's only nine years ago. Um, at this time, so uh, it means then that we are now seeing a uh, expansion of our Banking system in the U.S. to become uh, uh, insurance-related. It's different in other countries. In uh, Europe, they've had uh, universal banking, which allowed banks to offer insurance for a much longer time. But in the U.S., it's uh, kind of a recent, um, uh, a recent innovation. So I wanted to conclude with problems, which may sound kind of negative, but uh, this is. Uh, I don't shrink from negativism. it's not really negativism. it's talking about what what should be done. So uh, I wanted to come back to I told you that monoline was in the news a lot lately. And so what are we talking about uh, I don't know how much you read about the uh, right now we are going through... A major financial crisis, which started in the US but has spread over the world. Uh, and this is called the, uh, the uh, subprime crisis. Subprime refers to mortgages, which is not the subject of today's lecture. But a subprime mortgage is a mortgage issued to a borrower who is not considered prime then not a good risk uh, borrowers that are thought by the various models to be likely to fail to pay on their mortgage and to have to be foreclosed low they're often low income uh, but also they're people with poor credit histories so uh, the crisis that we're in now and this is very important you're, you're living through it uh, and we'll see how it pans out uh, the subprime crisis is Happening today because home prices are falling, and with falling home prices, more subprime borrowers are 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 failing to pay their mortgage, and default rates are shooting up, and uh, valuation of securitized subprime mortgages have crashed, uh, and it's throwing turmoil all over the in all over the financial community. Uh, It's we're we're seeing what they call systemic effects. Uh, that's a very general term that goes beyond insurance. By systemic effects, I mean something that affects the whole financial system. Uh, and when you do these calculations, which I just did for insurance, I was talking about insurance companies assuming that risks are independent. Everything's independent, we've got it all figured out. Uh, underlying it, there were other things besides just the calculation of their accident rates that uh, had certain assumptions built in. And the failure of the assumptions uh, in many different industries can create systemic effects. So, what happened? I want to talk about a particular line of monoline insurers that you may never have even heard of because they don't deal with the general public. And these are municipal bond insurers. Okay? These are private companies, insurance companies. They're monoline because they look only at a certain class of risks and not all risks that they insure. They deal with, principally, with state and local governments who are issuing bonds to raise money for their activities, like New Haven, for example, or any other, any state or local government. We refer to the bonds that they issue as municipal bonds, Now, the problem is that if you invest in bonds from some state or local government, they might not pay you back. They can just go bankrupt. Cities go bankrupt and they just can't pay. Uh, And so you as a as a buyer of these bonds uh, feel reluctant to invest in them. Okay? So in order to make their bonds saleable to the general public, city and state governments go or any regional, local governments go to the municipal bond insurer companies. Uh, and they have names. The big ones are MBIA, AMBAC, uh, uh, FGIC. That's not FDIC, it's not the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, it's FGIC. And there are others as well. Okay, And so what these do is they insure. The bond, they insure the investor against the municipality failing to pay on the bond. All right? And so lots of investors won't buy a municipal bond unless it's insured. Uh, Okay? So now I'm talking about systemic effects and the whole. So uh, these insurance companies have reserves on hand and they invest these reserves in something. So what do they invest them in? Well, one of the things they've been investing them in uh, is subprime mortgages. You know, now, you can see what I'm talking about, systemic effects. So, uh, The housing sector in the United States, you might say, is completely different from municipal bond insurers, but when the housing sector starts going down, people start defaulting on their mortgages. Uh, then, the uh, value of the subprime loans that the mortgage municipal bond insurers own starts to go down. Okay. Uh, now these guys have never failed to live up to their guarantees. They're doing just fine, but people are noticing that their portfolios are going down, and so uh, their surplus, uh, uh, statutory surplus, is going down, and uh, and so we're starting to worry about these companies. And so notably, it was January 18, a rating agency, Fitch, lowered. AMBAC from AAA rated to AA rated. Okay, that was a big news story. I, I, you might not have caught it, right? But it was a big news story. Because if you were in a municipal government, you thought, uh oh, this is bad news. I, I, if, this is the only, if only one rating agency does that, okay. But, and it's only AMBAC that's been downrated. But uh, you know, you start. So the reporters start calling the other rating agencies, Standard and Poor's and Moody's and others, and say, "Are you going to downrate these guys?" And and you read in the newspaper their interpretation of what's going to be said. And so far, uh, the other rating agencies uh, haven't. You know, they're not saying anything. They're not. But now people are suspecting that these are all going to get downrated. Well, if they're downrated, then nobody trusts them anymore as insurance companies. and, and so that means that the municipal governments will have it, find it hard to issue bonds to continue their activities. So the municipal governments might have to shut down some activities, like fixing the roads or, or bridges or whatever things, building schools, whatever the cities do, uh, with their municipal bond, the money they raise from the municipal bonds. So then well, you can see how things are feeding through the system. It starts out in one thing. It goes to the insurance companies. Uh, and then it goes to the municipal governments, and that all that kind of thing can, might might put this economy into a recession. If it's not just the municipal governments, but a lot of different, of a lot of different uh, aspects of our financial system are going to be touched by uh, a crisis that's spreading from one segment to another. Uh, so uh, that's where this stands right now. Uh, the latest thing, well, now uh, this is a crisis. Uh, a municipal bond crisis, which is unfolding, the New York state uh, re- uh, regulators have uh, been trying to get uh, companies to subscribe more capital to the monoline insurance companies to bolster their uh, their capital so that they have more money to pay out, and that will prevent any more lowerings of their ratings and uh, uh, so um, uh, the other thing that 's happened now is that Warren Buffett said he wants to get into the um, uh, municipal bond insuring uh, business, and so well, he 's just a business person coming in, uh, and so there will be new municipal bond insurers appearing that will take up the slack, and so we 'll be all right, but the problem is that we may have a crisis for a while. The other thing that I wanted to talk about and I guess I'm running out of time was about uh, a management of disaster risk uh, and uh, we, we have another insurance crisis developing now uh, because of uh, well a very important source of insurance risk that's developing has to do with the rising rate of hurricane damage that we're observing in the east coast of the United States. Uh, notably, we saw Hurricane Katrina uh, that caused uh, uh, huge property damage uh, in, uh, uh, a, a couple of years ago. That uh, I kind of tested insurance companies again, and the risk is that global warming will uh, will uh, make hurricanes more common. And uh, I guess I, I'll have to. F- I'll just conclude that um, uh, I'll talk a little bit about that. I've gotten through almost all of this. Uh, next time, the only other thing. Uh, then next period, we're going to talk on Friday. We're meeting again, and we're meeting again about. Um, uh, this time it, it's about efficient markets. Uh, and the, uh, I want to talk about the evidence for efficient markets and against it. And that will lead you into your third problem set uh, about efficient markets. But that's not coming for a little while.